Hi, I'm Mark Reed. Follow me as I attempt to put my new book, Impact Culture, into practice and discuss it with others taking a similar journey. You'll get tips that will help you achieve more impact from your research and stay healthy, no matter how busy you are. Rediscover your purpose. Lead from behind to empower those around you. Transform your work culture. Welcome to Season 4 of the Fast Track Impact Podcast. This is the third in a series of episodes that I've been doing about leadership, and specifically the kind of leadership we need to facilitate impact. This week I want to talk about what I'm calling bridging expertise, effectively being an expert at finding expertise. It's always seemed kind of strange to me that to become an academic leader, you have to first become a respected expert in your field. This is despite the fact that being an expert in a narrow field of research is unlikely to have any bearing whatsoever on your ability as a leader. And of course, when these researchers then stop or scale back their research to prioritise their management role, it feels to a lot of us like a bit of a waste. I certainly personally feel a certain level of resentment when a single faculty in a single university gets to capitalise someone who was once serving the world with their groundbreaking ideas. Now, clearly I'm jealous, but I think this is a jealousy that is fueled by the fact that I'm pretty sure the faculty could have been led just as well by someone who knew nothing about whatever it was that that person once specialised in. But apparently academics only respect leaders with impressive publications and citation metrics. <laughs> I'm not really sure what this is all about. I don't know, are people worried that uh, they won't be respected if they don't have academic credibility? Uh, could a poor track record be used to undermine them if they're not a very good leader? Maybe. But I know one thing, which is that when I think of the academic leaders who have inspired me in my career, I've got no idea how much they published, how influential their research once was or wasn't, and I don't know even what kind of field they were in often. These things just aren't, aren't relevant. What I want instead is leaders who understand the needs and priorities of those they lead as much as the hierarchies they serve. I want leaders who can give me the academic freedom I crave and the space to do the best work of my career. I want leaders who can create opportunities that will stretch me to go deeper and further in my career than I might otherwise dare to go so I can really make a difference. I want to follow someone whose expertise is being a leader. Now, in this series of episodes, I have explored the unique characteristics that are needed by leaders who want to facilitate impact, and I've thought about the importance of authenticity, valuing uncertainty, understanding your purpose, and so far I've been encouraging you primarily to look inward to become the kind of empathic leader that can facilitate impact. Now I want to invite you to look more outwards to the role of the empathic leader in connecting people and agendas. I think this is a really crucial skill, but I also think that it's a really underrated skill in academia because of our obsession with specialist academic expertise. We value depth of expertise in a narrow subject area rather than breadth of knowledge or the ability to connect people or ideas. 
We value original contributions we can publish and claim as our own ideas more than the contributions that arise when we bring people and ideas together to find new ways of solving intractable challenges. Sometimes old ideas make a big impact when they're applied to new problems. Sound, not original thinking, is the prerequisite to impact. I'm calling this skill bridging expertise. And there are two types of bridging expertise that you might want to cultivate as a leader who wants to make a difference. Ideas bridging and network bridging. So first of all, let me define both of these and then I'll dive into each of these in a bit more depth. Ideas bridging is where you integrate ideas from multiple disciplines and sources, and in the process you either generate original new insights or piece things together to see a big picture that nobody else can see. This can be restricted to the research process, or it can extend to impact generation processes, for example be by integrating different sources of knowledge in decision-making processes, which it has been shown can lead to more effective and durable decisions, or evidence synthesis to inform policy decisions. Network bridging, on the other hand, is where you connect with new people and networks. You do so deeply enough to see the world through their eyes, and as a result, you see things differently. And you connect widely enough to learn from multiple perspectives, and create new opportunities between people who you can see have something to gain from the connection. So let's dive into this idea of ideas bridging. I think there's a unique form of imposter syndrome that you experience when you're trying to work in the spaces between disciplines or knowledge communities. Any attempt to pretend that you are part of either community would of course be an imposition, and yet you're drawn to the places where ideas collide invisibly between these groups. The collisions are invisible because both communities think they're talking about different things with their different words and framings, so they see no connections between their ideas. But because you have learned to see through the jargon that these communities wall themselves in with, you can see things that others can't, and you're curious. There are insights to be found and solutions to be developed in these liminal spaces that neither group could see without your help. But there is a problem. As an interdisciplinarian or knowledge broker, you may be disrespected and dismissed by the communities you seek to work with. This is not because you are any less skilled, insightful or committed, although this is regularly implied in my experience. What's really going on is that you're not one of them. You're not in the group. You don't know the language and the traditions, and so you don't conform to the expectations or self-imposed limitations of the group. And as a result, you are at best seen as irrelevant, and at worst viewed as a threat. Finding confidence in your ability to borrow, integrate, and adapt ideas to generate your own sites is really difficult under these circumstances. But this is the lonely path that you may have to take if your primary goal is to generate impact rather than just to add to the accumulation of knowledge in your discipline. 
Personally, I started on this path quite early on in my career when I decided to use what I'd learned from the developing world about stakeholder participation in the UK. As soon as I started working in a developed world context, my work was unpublishable in development journals, and it was irrelevant to the international development community. And yet what I eventually published in the journal Biological Conservation was also ahead of its time in the UK and seen as a threat by many of the organisations who were claiming that they were engaging their stakeholders in decision-making processes, but were in practice only giving people outside their organisation very limited power to kind of tweak their plans. These ideas had been applied for years in the development community, who had long ago started learning from Western-driven development agendas that apparently knew what was best for local communities that they sought to serve. It was entirely con uncontroversial that Western conservation charities should work with local communities to co-design programs that delivered on local needs as much as their conservation objectives. And yet in the UK, there was still a mentality that conservation should follow the natural science and avoid being derailed by the interests of local communities as much as any other vested interest. The perspectives of uneducated stakeholders who didn't understand the science or appreciate the importance of conservation were simply not valid and so not worthy of attention. The idea that you might actually give decision-making power to such people who might use it to do something other than the one right thing that science would tell us to do was downright irresponsible. So being a conservationist, as I am, who champions the voices of local communities, has inevitably made me both friends and enemies in unexpected places. I get on with people who many conservationists hate because I'm genuinely interested in their perspectives. And as a result, many conservationists don't trust me. These people might have a vested interest, they might be conspiracy theorists, but most conspiracies start with a grain of truth. And however much you might disagree with someone, it is possible to find common values behind even the most objectionable beliefs if you dig deep enough. In common with most climate sceptics, I too don't want to feel guilty about my lifestyle. I want to belong to a group of people who make me feel special and are passionate about the same things as me. Simply listening to these sceptics' interpretation of the science is fascinating for me and cathartic for them. I'm not going to convert them to see the world as I do through good arguments or presenting evidence because their beliefs are fundamentally anti-evidence, and they won't believe a word I say as a climate researcher anyway. But by listening and validating their grain of truth, and whatever values I can get on with, I can create the connection they were looking for, and now they're listening to me as though I was one of them. And if this sounds kind of controversial, probably is, uh, have a listen to the podcast episode uh, where I uh, talk uh, about how to tackle conspiracy theorists uh, based on some social science evidence uh, in much greater depth. I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes because um, it was from uh, a couple of seasons ago, I think, uh, a while ago. The point I'm trying to make with this example is that ideas bridging is about seeking out different ideas and keeping an open mind to what you might be able to learn, even from a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> so 
do this. And you suddenly realise that a spark of an idea, something that might connect thoughts from different places, can come from anywhere. Your task as a leader who wants to see the big picture and bring others together around new ideas that could make a difference is to always be in listening mode and to listen deeply. Second, I want to come to this idea that I've introduced already of network bridging. One of the problems with networking, I think, is that it only seems to come naturally to extroverts. If you're an introvert or just don't like networking, can you become the kind of bridging expert I'm arguing is at the core of being an empathic leader? I've personally had to grapple with this question because I am a bit of an introvert. I will confess I do not look forward to the networking elements of conferences, the conversations in the corridors over coffee and such like. I find it kind of exhausting and draining. And yet, as I've deliberated this question, the answer I have reached is yes, because the goal ultimately is connection. And yeah, having lots of contacts can be useful sometimes, but ultimately it's the quality of your relationships that matters far more than the number of people in your address book when you actually need help with something. If you need anything that requires more than a couple of minutes of someone's attention, you're unlikely to get anything meaningful back from a crowdsourcing tweet. What you need to do is to go to people with whom you have social capital. Now, I'll give you a quick worked example of this. So when I left Newcastle University just over a year ago, I discovered that I'd got a bit of a problem. I needed to find someone who might be able to stand in for me as lead supervisor for one of my PhD students who didn't want to move with me to SRUC. And that meant doing the paperwork whilst letting me continue to operate effectively still as lead supervisor from my new institution so that the student would experience as little disruption as possible. So I needed someone who was both willing to do me a favour with the paperwork and who would trust that I would continue to play the lead supervisor role despite getting no credit for this work at my new institution. So rather than putting out a tweet or emailing the research group, I went straight to the one person who knew me best and who I had bent over backwards to help whenever they'd asked me to do something in the past, my line manager. We both trusted each other enough to know that we could make it work and all I needed was one person. To become a network bridger, what you need is to cultivate connection, and that can start with a single person. But how do you know you are making connections to the kinds of people who, by helping, might be able to enable you to really make a difference? There's an element of strategic prioritisation going on here. I have a small number of people who I make sure I'm in close contact with and do everything possible to make time for them and help them whenever they ask. One of them got in touch today. He is a VIP on my phone, so I couldn't miss the notification of his email, and he wanted to talk urgently about an opportunity. My diary is full for the rest of the month, but I've got a writing day tomorrow that I have diligently protected from diary appointments. 
but despite having said no to countless meetings and invitations for tomorrow to protect my writing time, I've told him to ring my mobile whenever he gets a chance tomorrow so we can chat through this opportunity. So as you can see, the problem with this approach is, of course, that it is really time consuming. And so you can only ever do this for a small number of people. To give you a flavour of some of the people that I regularly connect with and try to do as much for as I can, there are five people in my network that I proactively prioritise and do my best to build social capital with. First of all, there's someone who leads a team in Scottish Government on natural capital policy. Second, there is someone who heads up a team working on peatlands in DEFRA, UK Government Department. Uh, in fact, English Government Department uh, in, in terms of the stuff that, uh, that I'm working with them on. There's someone in charge of sustainability for a large multinational company who's well connected across the business and policy worlds and helping lead the corporate sustainability agenda. Uh, I connect regularly with the small team in the UK arm of an international conservation charity who are well connected across the third sector and peatland policy worlds. And there's someone in charge of a UN programme on peatlands who is influential in global policy agendas around peatlands. And through the UN has the capacity to inform and help shape peatland policies in countries around the world. So taken together by investing in these five relationships, I'm able to add value to people who I have grown to deeply respect and care for, for many, in fact, now as friends, who have the capacity at the same time to have impact across the policy, third sector and business communities in Scotland, England and internationally. Now, this isn't to say that I'm not going to help anyone else, but I have only got limited time and I can't proactively reach out to add value to everyone who might benefit from my help. So I've focused my limited time and energy where I feel I can make most of a difference. Each of these people are what the literature describes as bonding connections. Although seemingly very different to each other and to me, each of these individuals shares a passion for the environment and wants to tackle the climate emergency by using evidence to work across policy, third sector and business worlds. Most researchers have bonding connections with other researchers in disciplinary or institutional networks. It's easy to work with people who see the world in fundamentally similar ways to you. Bonding connections are important because there is power in numbers and it's easy to build deep and wide networks with like-minded people. Because these people are like you, it's easy for them to empathise with you when you're in need. And as a result, networks of people with bonding connections often have a high degree of reciprocity. However, if you want to lead change, there are two other types of connection that you need to cultivate. The first of these is bridging connections, and these occur when you cultivate relationships with people who are very different to you. Now, typically people think about the ability to create bridges of trust between different worlds, and for most researchers, building relationships with stakeholders is how you will create bridging connection. 
But it can go much deeper than just creating bridges between the worlds of scholars and charities or science and policy. The hardest and most rewarding bridges are those we build to people who are fundamentally different, even objectionable to us. Learning how to trust and be trustworthy with people that we instinctively distrust requires what I would argue are advanced empathy skills. This isn't just being friendly to people to build social capital that you can cash in at a later date while criticising them behind their backs. This is understanding and respecting people enough that you speak well of them behind their backs, even when you know others will judge you. I work on highly contested issues, as I've said, and I've sought to build bridges of trust with people on each side of the debates that I research. So in conservation, my home discipline, it isn't always cool to work with a company like Nestle or protect the interests of farmers, given the impact that both groups have had historically on the environment. But while it is easy to demonise a company or a group, it's much harder to think ill of an actual farmer who is telling you everything that they're doing to nurture nature on their farm, or a sustainability officer who wants to transform a company's supply chain and protect and restore nature. When you connect with these people's passion and see their heart, you can't help but build tr bridges of trust, even if you disagree with some of their beliefs and practices. Once you get to a person's values, it's very difficult not to find something that resonates with you. Finally, to achieve impact, I think leaders have a unique responsibility to become what I'm going to call bracing connectors. And what I'm talking about here is the ability to create connections between different hierarchical levels within networks. So, for example, between a farmer and an academic with a great idea uh, and a policymaker who might be able to act on that idea. So at one level, you've got the farmer and or the academic. And at a different hierarchical level in a decision-making process that ultimately leads to a policy, you've got that policymaker, the civil servant. Or perhaps you could describe this as connecting an early career researcher with a senior manager uh, so that their views are heard and the senior manager can act on them. Again, we're, br uh, we're bracing uh, between these hierarchical levels within the system. Now, being a leader puts us in a privileged position when it comes to becoming a bracing connector, because as a leader, you often get access to places where you can meet other leaders. Uh, and even cold calling another leader can actually get you a meeting if you are in a senior enough leadership role yourself. There's often an instant empathic connection with other leaders because of your shared experience. Everyone knows it's so-called tough at the top. <laughs> uh, the bigger challenge, I think, as a leader is to create equally trusting relationships with people in lower hierarchical levels. You may instinctively distrust you as one of the so-called elite who is probably out of touch with people like them. No matter how much humility you bring to these kinds of relationships, it's impossible to ignore the reality of this power dynamic, and you have to consciously undermine and give away your power to break through these barriers. 
in the context of this, this power dynamic then, it's really important that you make that first self-depreciating move, refer in passing to your own experience when you were at their level in the hierarchy, or share something vulnerable enough to emphasise your shared human experience. So, for example, when I'm training PhD students, I refer to my own experiences as a student and I share about my ongoing struggles with anxiety. I was once in their shoes and to this day still experience some of the struggles that they might be facing right now. So I'm going to conclude in a moment, but I think that uh, it's interesting to have a think about some of the lessons that we can learn from people in different disciplines and worlds and in different places in hierarchies so that we can get the kinds of insights that are very different to the sorts of ideas that you'll get from spending time with your bonding connections who are typically similar to you. Uh, Argus and Sean in 1974 described this as triple loop learning, where you're forced to reevaluate your assumptions, values, and beliefs and find new ways of learning, as opposed to the cognitive understanding of single loop learning or the critical thinking of double loop learning. Some of the people who have most deeply challenged how I think about and do research have been researchers from developing countries or Western development studies researchers who taught me to see my own prejudices and assumptions and those of the Western knowledge systems that I was embedded in. And this has been crucial in understanding my own positionality as a leader, and especially as a middle-aged, white, male, English-speaking, heterosexual, able-bodied, academic leader. And uh, uh, go back through, I think, episode three of this season if you want to hear more uh, on this whole uh, slightly boat-rocking journey that I've been on in terms of uh, examining these prejudices and assumptions. Uh, and, uh, and hopefully you'll learn from this yourself. I'm going to argue, uh, as I conclude, that to achieve impact, it is these uh, bridging skills that are more important than any academic expertise that you might have spent years honing. Surely, though, I hear you ask, our academic credentials are what makes us credible, and we want our impact to be based on solid evidence. Well, yes, but this doesn't have to be your evidence. As long as it's a robust evidence, you can draw any body of work that is relevant to the change you want to see. In fact, in many cases, uh, basing impact on evidence synthesis is much more robust as a foundation for impact <clears throat> uh, than basing it on your own latest findings, which might be contradicted by later research. By synthesising evidence from across a body of work, you're able to work out what you can say with certainty and which findings might only apply in certain contexts. And you don't even have to synthesise the evidence yourself. You might simply connect experts in your network with people who are looking for evidence-based answers. Uh, for example, in fact, I was uh, recently asked to advise an investment bank on a new land acquisition programme that they were trying to undertake. Uh, and I agreed to the job, despite knowing very little about the topic. But I then organised a roundtable event with over 60 experts from the investment, policy, landowner, third sector and rural communities. I managed to get 10 grand to pay a colleague to write a literature review, which we then sent to these experts ahead of our workshop. And we then revised the report, incorporating the insights we learned from them at the workshop. 
I still feel woefully in ignorance on this topic, but I now know enough to be able to provide some sensible advice. And when I reach the limits of my understanding, I've now got a network of people I can go and ask for help. And as the icing on the cake, we're going to write a paper based on what we learned in the workshop. It feels risky and vulnerable not to have all the expertise you would ideally want. But remember, you don't have to be the expert. You just have to have enough expertise to know who to ask for help. And with the collective knowledge of your network behind you, you can achieve far more impact than you could ever achieve alone.